Well, here we go, everybody. We're in the final week of Ecclesiastes, and so let's head that direction. What an incredible book of practical wisdom. And today we're headed to the final chapter where we're going to talk about the conclusion. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It is wonderful to see Laura Mendoza here this morning. Uh, Laura was one of our summer interns many years ago, and it is always great to see her, and we're thankful she's here this morning. Uh, a couple weeks from today, on August 14th, we have a special family that's going to visit with us. Uh, Pastor Julio Serenil is coming with his family to look at our Spanish ministry uh, in view of possibly leading that ministry. Yeah, so I want you to be praying for Pastor Julio and his family. They'll visit our English service and then our Spanish service in the afternoon as well. And as you get to meet them, and looking forward to seeing what God's going to do through all of that. Uh, if you think about it over these next 10 days, please pray for my trip to India. There are all sorts of little details that God needs to work out to make all this happen. And prayer is by far the best tool that we have in our arsenal, and one that we don't practice nearly enough. Uh, please pray as well for the start of the school year at Centennial Baptist School, which is one of our weekday ministries. There are hundreds and hundreds of things that still need to be done, and we truly seek God's wisdom and favor and provision for all those needs. All right, here we go in Ecclesiastes 12, and we start now in verse number 8. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads. And as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. And so after all of his observations uh, here in this book, Solomon returns to the truth that there is no hope for man under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, I remember years ago when I was probably 12 or 13, and this, there was a pastor who spoke on that title, Vanity of Vanities. And back then, we didn't have, you know, technological toys. We, you know, the slinky was pretty popular back then. And they were just starting to do some uh, little electronic toys. Uh, but he brought in for his object lesson that day uh, a bottle of soap bubbles. And that was going to be the object. And he pulled out the, the wand, right? There was one wand back then. Nobody ever thought that you could put like 10 right? Or that you could have a machine that blew it all over the whole room. Uh, but he took out the one wand, and he'd blow a bubble. And, uh, and then he had a few kids come up, and they were going to chase the bubbles. 
And we, he got a tall kid and a short kid and a fast kid and a slow kid. And uh, he got them all up there and he said, okay, we're going to see who's the first one that can catch a soap bubble and keep it. And would you believe it, there was nobody who could do it. No matter where they were from, how big they were, how fast they were, they couldn't catch the soap bubble and keep it. And he preached this message, Vanity of Vanities, and the title of it, he called it Soap Bubbles. And that message has stuck with me for all these years. Uh, What a profound truth that is. Most of the things that you live for and most of the things that I live for, by the time we catch up with them and try to grab them, they burst, right? They never satisfy. And when you try things and relationships and thrills and, and all these different assets that you want to try to satisfy your life, and it just pops, it's all vanity. The affections of this earth lead only to emptiness, You can fill yourself with knowledge, but if what you know only applies to this world, it adds up to vanity, to nothing, to a soap bubble. And Solomon realized this, uh, even though he made a great deal of effort to teach people knowledge, he wanted them to have words of truth. And uh, let's start today by talking about the words of the wise, the words of the wise. The notes are in your bulletin if you want to follow along with the message. They're also on the YouVersion app if you'd like to look there. Uh, talk about the words of the wise. And, and let's go back to verses 10 and 11. And uh, let's read these one more time so we get a handle on what's happening here. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And uh, and so I I don't want you to miss the connections here from verse 11. Uh, Did you ever do dot-to-dot art when you were a kid? Uh, How do you ever did the paint by numbers? Did you ever do that? Oh, that was a fun thing. They still got that around. Well, verse 11 It's kind of like a dot-to-dot puzzle or a puzzle in general. And have you ever noticed that puzzles are a whole lot easier when you have the picture of the finished product in front of you, right? When you know what the puzzle is supposed to look like, it's easier to fill the puzzle in. Uh, When you have just puzzle pieces and you have no idea what it's supposed to look like, that's going to be a hard puzzle, right? Have you ever tried to do a puzzle with no picture? It's almost impossible. When you see the big picture, the little pieces are much easier to place. And to understand verse 11, we got to go at the big picture first. We have to see what we're looking at, okay? So, yeah, if you're doing this uh, in your notes or if you're looking here uh, at your Bible and you like to write, you like to underline, we're going to go to the end of the verse first. And I want you to notice at the end of the verse that these words of the wise are given from one shepherd. They're given from one shepherd. Now, who, I wonder who the one shepherd could possibly be who would give us the words of the wise. I wonder who it could be. And this is a powerful reminder that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, the Greek word there, inspiration, 
means God breathed. The word of God is literally God breathed. Second Peter 1 says the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, the author of this book is God. That's why it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That's why these words are more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. God alone gives us the wisdom for our journey. And if you want to understand the blueprint for life, you need to hear directly from the master builder, the one shepherd who gives truth. Do you know you could go to church every week for the rest of your life and remain a baby Christian? You got to get in the Word of God for yourself. You got to get in the Word of God every day. Uh, this is the living truth. This is the sword of the Lord. This is the powerful book that God gives us. And, and there's one shepherd who gives truth. There's one God who gives wisdom for the journey. Now, let's back up a little more on the verse. It says, which are given from one shepherd. But look who fastened these truths. They were fastened by the masters of assemblies. Okay, the masters of assemblies. Now, did you know that a church, the literal word, the Greek word, ekklesia, means a called out assembly, a called out assembly of believers? And so who delivers truth? The masters of the assemblies. You know who those are? Church leaders, right? Pastors, teachers, could be a Sunday school teacher or Bible study leader or a small group host or youth pastor a Christian parent, whoever is opening God's word is fastening these truths that God alone has given us. And we are called to fasten these truths, right? In fact, Deuteronomy 6 calls out dads and says, hey, dads, you're supposed to teach these diligently to your children. When you're sitting down, when you're standing up, when you're walking by the way, when you sit down for the meal, you're supposed to attach them to the walls of your house. You're supposed to put them as frontlets between your eyes. You're, you are to make the Word of God the highest truth in your life. You're supposed to make the Word of God the premier thing that you follow. Now, I'm telling you, with the information age that we live in, there is information like everywhere at all the time. And it's easy to get distracted away from God's clear, simple truth. And so we got to keep fastening these. The masters of assemblies drive these truths into our minds. Now, look how they drive them into our minds. Back up one more phrase. As nails fastened by the masters of assemblies. Okay? So they drive these truths into our minds like nails. They hit the nails on purpose, right? You don't drive nails by accident, right? Even when you're focused, it can be hard to drive a nail. Uh, driving nails can be harder than it looks. Uh, I dare you to just go pick up some little hammer and drive a box of 16-penny nails into some two-by-fours, okay? Unless your name is Lucas Corder, you're not ready for that, that will wear you out quickly. 
that driving truths into minds isn't for the faint of heart. It's not for the lazy. It's not for the casual Christ follower. It is hard work to drive the truth, right? You got to keep hitting the nail on the head. Sometimes after church, somebody will walk up, Pastor, you hit the nail on the head today, right? Where do they get that from? Well, your mom or grandma or somebody probably used to say that. But it's actually from Ecclesiastes 12.11. The master of the assembly is called to hit the nail on the head every time. That's what we're called to do. And driving truths is not for lazy people. Uh, when I was in high school, I used to hear preachers, uh, and they'd get up and they'd say something like, you know, preaching a sermon uh, was like doing a full day of manual labor. And when you see them after the service, they're just all sweaty. And they, I don't know if they wore flannel underneath their jacket or what they did, but there's like their whole body was wet, like they just jumped in the baptismal. And, and so I used to get a chuckle out of it. Uh, how hard could it possibly be, I said, to get up there and preach? And then I started getting up and preaching uh, for 40, 45 minutes or an hour at a time. Do you know it takes incredible focus of mind to boldly and clearly preach God's Word without getting distracted? I like going, hum, uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, right? But that's what Master's Assemblies are called to do. They're called to drive the truth into our minds like nails. Now, back up a little more. They're also called to use the truth like goads, okay, like goads to provoke us in surrender to God. Uh, have you ever seen a cattle prod? Right? That's what a goad is. They have electric ones now. But back in Bible times, they would use a sharp stick or a metal rod to guide animals to where they needed to go. These goads would give them an incentive to keep moving in the right direction. Uh, we were with the kids for a couple hours yesterday at the fair, just walking through and looking at the animals and exhibits and all that stuff. And while we were there and we were about to leave, a sheep got loose yeah, from one of the kids that was taking it into the arena for the, the auction. And uh, then all these kids are running, trying to chase the sheep, and uh, trying to corral it, get it where it's supposed to be. And one finally got the head. And then uh, a guy, a farmer, who knew what he was doing, he walked up, grabbed the sheep by the tail, lifted the tail, and started walking the sheep exactly where he wanted to go. Right? He used the tail as a goad. Okay? He's moving that sheep where he wants it to go. And in Israel's history, uh, sometimes they had to use goads as weapons because they didn't have any swords or spears. All they had were these rods that they used for animals. Now, I want you to put verse 11 all back together now. Okay? We took the puzzle apart. Now we're going to put it together. The masters of assemblies take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and they poke people with it to get them moving in the right direction. And the Spirit applies the pokes to the heart. 
Now, if you're a parent, did you know that you're called to be a master of assembly at your house, and you are called to continually poke your kids with the Word of God? You say, well, I don't want to use the Bible as a weapon. It is a weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit, right? If you want to pierce the dividing asunder of soul and spirit in your kid's heart, there's only one thing that will do it. It's the Word of God. It's not your logic. It's not what Oprah said. It's not what the Internet said. It's the black and book, the black and white book of God's Word. And so we've got to get the weapon out, and we've got to poke people with it. Now, I'll just tell you up front, when you poke people with the Word of God, they don't always like it, okay? Especially if they've got rebellious hearts. If they've got rebellious hearts, when you poke them with the Word of God, it's really weird, it makes their face puff up, right? And in fact, the New Testament has a term for it. It's called puffed up. They look like a blowfish, right? Sometimes when you poke people with the Word of God in church, it's weird. They go like this, and their face gets red. And, and so we got to poke people with the Word of God. You got to tell them the truth. You notice people in the audience uh, sometimes as they get poked. It is very interesting. Now I want to move on to verse number 13. And let's talk about the conclusion in two parts. First, let's hit this. Conclusion number one, the first part, fear God. Fear God. So at the end of this great discourse on life, Solomon came up with a two-point conclusion. Point one, fear God. Now, this speaks of the inward worship of God, the reverence, the love, the trust, the heart toward pleasing Him, the dread of displeasing Him. When we're in close relationship with God, we honor Him because we love Him. That's the ultimate motivation. But you know, fear is another strong motivation when it comes to how we view God. Uh, we don't treat God haphazardly. We don't take his name in vain. We don't speak of him flippantly or carelessly. Why? Well, to put it bluntly, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If there is any entity in the entire universe worth fearing, it is God. As Jesus said, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, uh, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And you don't want to be on God's bad side. You don't want the righteous judge to place a sentence upon you. Now, maybe you've noticed that a large portion of society has seemingly lost their fear of God. Or they never had it in the first place. In Romans 3, as Paul describes the characteristics of being a sinner, which we all are, here's the description. Here's what he says, Romans 3. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's like a, a venomous snake. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace have they not known. Now listen to this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Isn't that telling? There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you want to see a society full of sin, this verse perfectly encapsulates it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Their level of reverence for God does not restrain them from committing crimes against him. Now, Psalm 36.1 says it this way. The transgression of the wicked says within my heart that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, when people don't fear God, they drop all guardrails towards sin and its damaging effects. Uh, the other day, one of our kids was throwing a temper tantrum. And I know it's hard to imagine that a pastor's kid would do such a thing. Uh, but pastor's kids are all sinners like everybody else. And anyway, Amy says to me, as the kid's throwing a temper tantrum, she says, can you imagine acting that way toward one of your parents when you were a kid? They're like, yeah, I can't even imagine. There ain't no way. I may not have survived the discipline afterward, right? I was too afraid to act like that. Or you say, well, you shouldn't make your kids afraid of you. Well, my parents did, right? They, they instilled some fear of authority. And the fear of authority can be a restraint to sinful behavior. Now, it may not be the most positive restraint to sinful behavior, but it is definitely a restraint to sinful behavior. Okay? You're driving down the highway, you're going 67 and a 55, and all of a sudden, you see an Idaho State Patrolman up there. Why did you slow down? Right? Because there is a restraint to your sinful behavior. You don't want to have to pay the ticket. There's fear involved. Okay? And yet when it comes to God, oh, we don't want the Heavenly Father to think that we're afraid of Him. Right? Well, actually, God tells us quite often that we're supposed to fear Him and be very afraid of what He can do. And we know that our Heavenly Father he doesn't want us to be scared to approach him, to worship him, to live in his grace, to regularly go to him in prayer. In fact, the Bible says over a hundred times, fear not, because God wants us to love and trust him, to desire to please him. But he also wants us to remember that he is all-powerful. He is great. And there should be a dread of deliberately crossing the boundaries God has set. You ever do something really dumb, and you for sure didn't want your mom or dad to find out? Now, why is that? Well, hopefully you love them so much you didn't want to displease them, right? Hopefully that's what it was. But it may have also been that you didn't want to face the music, Right? You didn't want the wrath of dad. You especially did not want the wrath of mom. Uh, when I was probably in 11th grade or so, we had this night at church where the uh, older teenagers uh, took care of little kids for a, some parents could go on a date night or something. And uh, so we were in one part of the church, and I, I went back through uh, to get some supplies in the church, back of the church auditorium. And uh, I had this uh, racquetball, and I was just kind of tossing on the way, and 
And uh, I was always tossing balls when I was a kid and throwing them up and catching them or throwing them against the wall. It was called entertainment back then. And, uh, and so I had this racquetball and I was throwing it up. And I kept throwing it higher and higher. The church auditorium had high ceilings. And I thought, man, this is great. Really high ceilings. And, uh, of course, I was focused. I was headed to get what I needed to get, right? So I was throwing it up higher and higher. And uh, finally, I throw it up so high, and it's like a gust of wind carried it. There's no wind in the church auditorium. What in the world's happening? Could it be the wind of the Spirit guiding my ball for me to get in trouble? I don't know. But uh, anyway, when the ball came down, it landed on the end of the organ keyboard and broke off two of the organ keys. Yeah. Oh. You know who the music pastor of the church was? My father. Right? You know that he's going to find out that two keys got broken off the organ. And uh, he may not be the smartest man in the world. He's pretty smart. But he's going to figure out what happened. And so after the thing, I said, something happened. What happened? Well, I was in the auditorium, and racquetball was in the air, and it just flew over there and hit the organ keys, and they broke off. And so anyway, I had to tell him and face the music, and uh, he was very gracious to me. It's one of the rare times in my life when my father laughed at me. Well, probably not. It's probably not one of the rare times. He laughed at me, you know, when necessary. But uh, he, he was pretty nice to me, and he didn't take it out on me too much. We glued him back on, and nobody knew different. Uh, but, you know, I didn't want to face the music. And a lot of times we don't want to face the music. And you know what that proves to be? Fear. That's what it is. And when we reverence God in the right way, uh, that's a healthy thing. Now, let's see conclusion two. Okay, so fear God and keep His commandments. When you put both things together, you're doing all that you've been created to do. You're living out your purpose. Uh, the duty of man is perfectly encapsulated in this combo. Fearing God speaks of inward worship. But keeping his commandments is the outward evidence of the heart. Everything you do starts in your heart. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Your lifestyle is just a reflection of your heart. As Jesus would later say, by their fruits ye shall know them. And he would tell his disciples, yeah, men that he loves so dearly, men that claim to love him. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And uh, later, uh, we find in the book of 1 John, he says, how can you say you love God if you don't do what he says? Right? If you don't want to follow his instructions, how can you say you love him? Uh, after all, God doesn't ever give instructions to hurt you. He only gives them to help you live out his will for your life. Paul addressed this in a very practical way in Romans 6. He asked this question. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey? You know that everybody obeys somebody? Everybody does. 
and whoever you obey is your master. In, in other words, at all times, you are keeping someone's commands. Someone is your master. It can't be God and yourself at the same time. It can't be God and the world at the same time. It can't be God and the enemy at the same time. You choose who you will serve. You yield to your master. So this is very easy to understand. If you say that Jesus is your Lord, but you have no interest in doing what he says, then he's not really your Lord. Okay, did you catch what I just said? Uh, if you say that Jesus is your Lord, but you have no interest in doing what he says, he's not really your Lord. Now, you hear people say things, oh, you hear kids and teens and adults, you're not the boss of me, right? You ever hear a kid tell you, you're not the boss of me? Well, somebody is. Somebody's the boss of you. Uh, or nobody tells me what to do. But that's impossible. Your master is the one who tells you what to do. Now, it could be that your master is your flesh. But if your flesh is your master, that's not going to end well. Uh, if the devil is your master, that for sure won't end well. If your peers are your master, that could be disastrous. But if Jesus is your master, you'll find rest and peace and grace. Now, you start to see how the wisest, most eloquent guy in world history could come up with such a simple conclusion for how life works best. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now let's move on to the final verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, verse number 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Let's talk about every secret thing. I want you to notice the legal wording that is given here. God shall bring every work into judgment. Okay, this is an absolute. It's going to happen. Uh, the all-knowing God is keeping records on us all. Every thought, every word, every action, every motive, he sees and hears it all. Uh, there are many items in every human heart that we may think we have hidden from everyone, including God. Uh, those secret things that no one has yet uncovered, but God knows it all. And he's keeping a book on me and a book on you. And the only way to keep from being judged according to the sins recorded in the book is to have your name written in another book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And in the Lamb's Book of Life, your name is written with the blood of Jesus. You can no longer be judged according to your sins. They're all forgiven, washed away forever. But if you never receive the gift of eternal life that Jesus offers, you will indeed stand before God and be judged according to your sins. Revelation 20 describes this as the great white throne judgment, where every person not written in the book of life will be judged eternally for their sins. Okay, this is the judgment of the lost, where all secret things come out. But there's another judgment for the saved. And just as Solomon indicates, all the secret things are going to come out there as well, but in a different way. Uh, see, believers, children of God, 
can't be judged for their sins. Their sins are no more. Uh, I love that kid's song that says, G-O-N-E, yes, my sins are gone. Uh, now my soul is free and my heart's a song. Buried in the deepest sea, yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God, my sins are G-O-N-E. I didn't know if I could do it. <clears throat> it is gone. It's gone, right? The sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. But the New Testament makes us aware of an event called the judgment seat of Christ, where all the children of God will stand before our Savior and be judged for our works. Okay, not for our sins, but for our works. And every work will be evaluated in this day, in this way. Was this done for eternity or was this done for the temporary fulfillment on the earth? And the judgment seat of Christ will reveal the believer's vanity versus the believer's treasure. Now, Paul wrote about the judgment seat of Christ on several occasions. Yeah, perhaps the instance with the most information is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And yeah, that's where we want to close out the message this morning. And yeah, so I encourage you to turn there as we look at our faith challenge today from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> and as you get there, we're going to read four verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And these describe the judgment seat of Christ. If you are a believer you will be at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's good news because it means you won't be at the great white throne judgment. First uh, Corinthians 3, verse number 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now when all the secret things about me are brought out in the open, I know that I will be ashamed. Of so many times when I have lived for the temporary instead of the eternal. And I'm so thankful that I won't be judged for my sins. Uh, but rest assured, I will be judged for my works and so will you. The fire will try every man's work of what sort it is. And if it burns up in the judgment, that means it was empty. It was vanity like Solomon talked about. But if it passes through the fire of judgment... If it's considered gold, silver, precious stones by God, then it's going to be an eternal treasure. Now, salvation is a free gift for anyone who will accept. But eternal rewards are for the faithful service of believers. And as we close this message in this series, it's a good time to evaluate where your life is. Because God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, you're going to be accountable for every second of every day. 
You're going to be accountable for every word, for every penny, for every resource. Judgment is coming for every single one of us. And, and the first question that you should ask is, which judgment will I attend? Okay, have you ever received Jesus as your Savior? If you fail to receive Jesus as your Savior, you will be at the great white throne judgment. And it will be awful, horrible, beyond imagination. And you'll find out that the wages of sin is indeed death, eternal separation from God. But if you've received Jesus, you'll be at the judgment seat of Christ. And all your works will go through the fire of judgment. And the question is, will you have any crowns to lay at the feet of Jesus, or will you watch as everything you've lived for is burned up because it's all vanity? I think that many, many, many believers are going to have their entire lives burned up in the judgment. They'll have nothing to show to the Savior, not a thing. They'll be saved, but so as by fire. No eternal rewards. And, and so the end of Ecclesiastes is a sobering section, but it's necessary. And, and so what's the answer? Well, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let's pray together. God, as we close out this sermon, this series, there could be someone here who realize for the first time today that they do not have Jesus Christ as Savior. There could be one who realize that they'll be at the great white throne judgment and they'll be judged for their sins. And I pray that you'd speak to that heart right now. Lord, help them to know that we can take the Word of God and show them in just a few short minutes how they can know for certain that Jesus is their Savior, that they can accept your gift of life that you've given to everyone. And as believers, Father, I, I pray that you would help us to be watchful for your coming and to realize that we are going to be judged for our works, for every single resource that you've ever sent our way. How did we use it for your kingdom? Did we use it for your glory? And I pray that you'd help us to use everything you've given us for your glory this week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Have a wonderful last day of July. And we'll see you in August.